to the Lord. Okay, who keeps doing this? Before I forget, I need to see Chuck Matone and Dave Bond in the waiting room after service. Most of life is waiting, and thats I don't call that an office. I call it a waiting room. used to be called Yankee Stadium Room, but the picture of Yankee Stadium is in the bathroom now, so... I read an article this week about a dog named Casper, and he was a sheepdog. He apparently, in protecting the sheep that he was given charge of, he fought off about a dozen coyotes, killed eight of them in the ferocious conflict. And he disappeared for a couple days, as animals often do, whether cats or dogs, if they're injured. A lot of his skin was ripped apart by the coyotes in the battle, and it was a half hour of ferocity, a terrific and fierce battle. It would be something to view if we could see it on film for sure. But then I thought, so you want to be a sheepdog, you want to be a shepherd, you want to be a pastor, but then I thought of something that I cannot escape in my study, never have, hope I never will, is the thought that in order for the Messiah, the great shepherd of the sheep, to enter into the glory that we know he is in now, there was a requirement of suffering that we have no idea about. It's untranslatable into human articulation. And I always want to give credit to that because we determine not to know anything here detached from our shepherd our shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, and him crucified. The new creation will bear the marks of a former suffering. All the new creation will bear the marks of a former suffering and a present glory, and even the one who suffered will bear the marks forever of the suffering that brought about the new creation. And this is my goal, and it will be one of my final goals, to express this, and it should be the goal of any communicator of the Word of God. Sometimes the pastor has to do things that no one else has to do, and that is to be the hard charger, to say certain hard things, to bring about certain difficult doctrines, and to challenge. But the whole message is really for your edification and to make you strong in the Lord and the power of his might. We already know our weakness. Secondly, I want to thank everyone for their generosity, but I don't want to talk too much about it because the Lord said don't even let your right hand know what your left hand's doing or vice versa when you do giving. So we give and we forget about it. So we will, I'm sure, hear gratitude from those who benefit from your generosity. And I know you don't need that, but thank you. Third thing, we're meeting on Saturdays for Christmas Eve and Christmas or New Year's Eve, Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, Saturday morning. That's going to be different. You'll think we're the church of the Seventh-day Adventist or something, but or a synagogue. But we're meeting on Saturday, and that's because Sunday is Christmas, and I know that makes a lot of complications for parents and kids and grandparents and everything. So Saturday morning. I'm, I'm intending, incidentally, to do two 
special messages, Emory. I'll be doing two special messages. The first one will be called A Christmas Apocalypse. It came to me this morning. A Christmas Apocalypse on Saturday the 24th. And then the 31st, we're going to have a special communion service. And it will be a 2023 apocalypse. So it will be a couple of apocalyptic specials. And they've been cooking in my brain and simmering in my soul now for eight or nine months, both these messages. And I decided, why not do them now? I was wondering when to do them. So just bear that in mind. And today, Moses and all the prophets might be an appropriate title for today's message. During the course of our study in Hebrews, a heaven-sent homily, I'm often reminded of Luke's gospel, especially the post-resurrection episode. This is very close to my heart. I'm speaking of verses today that are very close to my heart, including that post-resurrection conversation, something Pastor Stewart's also been given a lot of wonderful attention to and detailed attention to with Cleopas and the other disciple. The other one, and it It's kind of moving forward to being the premier verse that's in my soul is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God, who said light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. That's Paul's exegesis, incidentally, of Genesis chapter 1. He was doing an, an exegetical rendition of Genesis 1, especially 1-3, but whenever Paul mentions a verse in the scripture, whether it's a psalm or from Moses or the prophets, one verse or sometimes even a phrase, it's you have to go back and check the whole context, for, forward and backward, the whole context, because the whole context is intended. So Paul intended in 2 Corinthians 4-6 an exegesis of Genesis 1. Now, during the course of our study of Hebrews, I'm often reminded, and I have to give the credit to the spirit of Luke's gospel, especially that post-resurrection episode where Jesus speaks to Cleopas and another of his disciples who are on the road to Emmaus, probably to celebrate the last victory that was won by Judas Maccabees since they viewed the victory of Jesus Christ as a failure. In their conversation along the road before they recognized Jesus, Jesus expounded all the scriptures. It says all the scriptures. Beginning, that's archamenos, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, Luke twenty four twenty seven, under this theme, and this is the theme of all the scriptures, Moses and all the prophets, all what we call the Old Testament scriptures, as well as the new, of course, under the theme that, quote, the Christ had to suffer and through suffering to enter into his glory. Not only did the Christ have to suffer, but it was through that suffering and only through that suffering that he entered into his glory. Not his glory only, but the glory of the whole new universe was entered through the suffering of the Messiah. 
In fact, that's my point that I'm trying to articulate and can't yet. I need grace even for the articulation. It's like seeing unspeakable things that can't be uttered, but it's time to utter those things. Peter tells his readers, and there's also a great affinity between Peter, his epistles, especially his first epistle with Hebrews. Peter tells his readers that, quote, first, the prophets prophesied about the grace of God that would come to you. That's 1 Peter 1.10. And two, that the spirit of Christ within them, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of Messiah that was in them, who? The prophets, all of them. The spirit of Christ within them testified in advance to the messianic sufferings and the glories that would follow. Please notice that the glories that would follow is the glory of the Christ himself. The gospel we preach, incidentally, is the gospel of the glory of the Christ. It's not what most men call the gospel. It's not what most preachers call the gospel and evangelists call the gospel. The gospel of the glory of the Christ is the gospel of his, well, let me just do it this way. Spell a Greek word for you. It's a gospel of the glory of the Christ, which is to fill the whole earth. There's this word that is key word to me also in scripture. A-N-A-K-E-P-H-A-L. That word comes into Hebrews 8.1, incidentally. Of all the things we're saying, this is the head or the primary thing, kephale. Ana kephalai a-o. Omicron O, Omega O. The Omega O, let's capitalize it since we capitalize the A or the Alpha. The Alpha and the Omega that straddles this word anakephaleao, which is the summation of all things. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Alpha and the Omega of the anakephaleosis, the recapitulation of everything in the heavens and the earth. And this is the glory of the Christ, the glory of the Christ that extends to all of creation in all of its times, to all humanity in all of its times. And this is the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's the gospel of the glory of the Christ that the God of this age blinds the minds of people to. It's the gospel of the glory of the Christ that the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 blinds the minds of those who do not believe. And that, that, those who aren't believing includes a whole passel of Christians that aren't believing the gospel of the glory of the Christ. And this is the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And that is what shines into our hearts, giving us the knowledge of the glory of God the knowledge of the glory of God that fills the earth will be the knowledge that comes and shines in the face of the crucified Christ. It will be everywhere, that knowledge. That knowledge is already shown into your hearts. And I speak of those of you here today who have come to understand this anakephaliao, this 
I am the Alpha and Omega, Jesus said, Revelation 1.8, Revelation 21.6, Revelation 22.13. Now, Peter tells his readers, again, that the Spirit of Christ within these prophets testified in advance to the messianic sufferings and the glory that would follow. He goes on to say, angels are interested in this. Angels are intrigued by this. Angels are fascinated by this. Angels learn about this. And Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 3.10. The principalities and powers are learning by means of the church, by means of what's taught in the church, by means of this message today. Angels are learning of the manifold wisdom of God. Now the grace that would come to you that was prophesied by the Spirit of Christ in them is the grace of God by which Messiah Jesus experienced death for everyone in Hebrews 2.9 and thus brought eternal salvation to the world in the time of Peter's readers. Not before, but in that time. This grace comes to all of humanity in all of its times, of course, but it entered into history not during the time of the prophets, not during the time of Moses, but in A.D. 30, and therefore in the time of Peter and his readers and the readers of Hebrews. The Hebrews author begins his homily in the very first complex sentence, which we call the exordium. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, by saying that God spoke provisionally to the fathers in the prophets. In these last days, though, has spoken definitively to us in a son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe, through whom he made the universe. God made the universe through the crucified Christ. And it's my contention that he made this universe in the eternal moment of Christ's crucifixion. And stored up in that cross was the resurrection and the new creation of all things. The act that brings forth the new creation is the passion of the Christ. The action of God in Christ, the passion of Christ in God. Moses, in the Lucan context, when Jesus was speaking from Moses and all the prophets, Moses means the writings attributed to Moses. And that's usually the first five books of the Bible, coupled with Psalm 90 and some other writings, but that's the Pentateuch. All the prophets, on the other hand, takes in all the books attributed to God's holy prophets whose writings are included in the Old Testament scriptures. In Luke's gospel, Paul's friend and his personal doctor and physician, Luke, writes of the sum of what all of the prophets were saying related to the Christ, the Messiah, and the fact and reality that he had to suffer in order to enter into his prophesied glory. 
everybody seemed to know about the Messiah's glory, but the tripping stone was his suffering to enter into it, that the very means of his entry into glory had to be suffering, and that the suffering was a lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Please notice two things in Revelation 13, 8. The lamb slaughtered and the foundation of the cosmos. Because it's my intention to show that there is a very intimate relationship between the act of the slaughtering of the lamb and the foundation of the universe, the creation of the universe. And to do this, you're going to be going through a keyhole into eternal perspective. An eternal perspective. The scriptures can't be seen as they ought to be seen unless they are seen from a horizon that is God's own view. He inhabits eternity with him also, who is of a crushed spirit. Isaiah 57, 15. In Luke's gospel, Paul's friend and doctor, Luke, writes of the sum of what all of the prophets were saying related to Christ, the Messiah, and the fact that he had to suffer in order to enter his prophesied glory. In Luke's sequel, I call Luke's gospel Luke's gospel. I call Acts Luke's sequel. He also wrote Acts. In Luke's sequel, Acts, God's voice spoke univocally. That means with one voice, not many things. Univocal means one voice, univocal. He spoke univocally in all his holy prophets. Those are holy prophets as opposed to any old prophets. A lot of people have the name prophet assigned to them, including rock singers and Baal prophets, the prophets of Baal. The holy prophets are the Hebrew prophets that God set apart in whom he speaks, in whom he spoke. But remember when he spoke, he didn't just speak about historical things. He spoke as the eternal God, eternal truth in temporal men, historical men, his holy prophets. So in Luke's sequel, God's voice spoke, according to Peter again, From time immemorial is how Romelli, Elaria Romelli translated it, and I like that. Ap aeonos. You'll see that in print. Or with our growing new understanding, he spoke in the nunc stans. That's the Latin term that means the now that stands. Eternity is a now that stands. It's it's coetaneous with time, but it's above time. It transcends time, but it's imminent in time, just as God's transcendent and imminent. He is present within his creation, but he's also transcendent above his creation. And so he spoke in the now that stands in these prophets. In other words, God spoke eternally, or from his habitation in eternity, 
in Isaiah 57:15, but he also is with those who are brokenhearted and crushed. And there's one thing about all the prophets. At one point in their lives, they became brokenhearted and crushed. Whether it's Isaiah who said, I am undone, or whether it's Jeremiah who cried what he called rivers. Long before the song, Cry Me a River. Joe Cocker did a good job of that one, by the way. So, see, I can't, I have to keep going to music, but wait until we get to deeper into um, Hebrews. Better, better, better. Hey, Jude. So he speaks not only in his own lofty position in his habitation in eternity, but in those who are of crushed spirits, his prophets. In Luke's gospel, God's eternal voice spoke in all the prophets of the necessity of the Christ, the Messiah's sufferings, all of them, and that his suffering was the path that he needed to take to enter into his glory. In Luke's sequel, Acts, God's voice spoke univocally of the restoration of all things. So please notice that all the prophets and Moses spoke essentially and in their very essence of the sufferings of Messiah and his entry into glory. But in all the prophets, God also spoke of the restoration of all things, which is another way of saying the new creation of everything. So there's an intimate connection and there isn't a more important one in all the scripture between the sufferings of the Messiah and his entry into glory and the restoration of all things, which is ultimately the creation of everything in newness. The act of the Messiah's sufferings entering into glory is the same act that brought into being a new creation in which the end is the beginning and the beginning is the end and the end and the beginning are in Christ Jesus. He is the beginning and the end. I'm just dropping hints here. My speech is distilling from heaven like the dew on the morning grass and like the gentle rain, said Moses. So it's not coming all at once, because this is too big of a connection. The restoration of all things is the same as the new creation of all things. The new creation of all things is forever united to the suffering of the Messiah and his entry through suffering into glory. This is called the glory of the Christ again in 2 Corinthians 4.4. And the gospel is called, more precisely, the good news of the glory of the Christ, who is the image of God. Back in the 1970s, early 70s, I became very aware that the story of my life from then on would be the story recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I knew that. That was a parallel to... Read it and know it, God said, because you're going there. That's the parallel to your life. But it's also the parallel to all of our lives in this world. The glory of the Christ includes very significantly his great archpriesthood, which he exercises as a minister in the heavenly tent in the interest of eternal redemption, in Hebrews 9.12. Redemption that he secured 
not by the blood of sacrificial animals, but by his own blood, as the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the cosmos, the world, the universe, hence universal redemption and eternal salvation, Hebrews 5.9. For the glory of the Christ is also to fill all the earth. For as God says in the prophet Habakkuk, the earth will be filled with the knowing of the glory of the Lord. It will cover them like water. The earth will be filled with knowing. So he's talking about all rational creatures knowing the glory of the Lord. Remember, the light of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord that shines from the face of Jesus Christ has already shone in our hearts. But it's going to shine. The earth will be filled with the knowing of the glory of the Lord, it will cover them like water. This Habakkuk 2.14, incidentally, has a very tight connection with where we're going very soon in Hebrews 8, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, quoted in its totality from the Septuagint in Hebrews 8, 6 through 12. Then he speaks of a vanishing away of the old covenant in Hebrews 8, 13. So all of this, whether you know it or not, if you're impatient about exegeting Hebrews 8, I am. In Paul's own exegesis of Genesis 1, especially verse 3 of Genesis 1, in 2 Corinthians 4, he writes again, The God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of the Christ the knowledge of which will be known by all the earth, will fill all the earth, has already entered into our hearts. That's what this is all about. That's why we come to church. That's why we live and move and have our being in this world. No other reasons. No other primary reason. The knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that is to fill the whole earth, has already penetrated our dark hearts for you were once darkness now you are light in the lord walk as children of light that's ephesians 5 8 incidentally recalling john 12 35 and 36 the words of jesus christ while you have the light walk in the light that you may be the sons of light the children of light One of the most momentous connections you can make in the study of the Bible, then, is the connection of the crucified and risen Messiah with the restoration or the new creation of all things. Acts 3.21, Revelation 21.5 and 6. This glorious restoration, like the resurrection of Messiah, Jesus, from the dead, comes about necessarily through the suffering of the Messiah, Jesus. Why? necessarily because as the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 2 and if you have your Bible or your laptop or whatever you have where your Bible is in Hebrews 2.10 please notice this for the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory 
What's many mean there? Well, let me think. I think Romans 5.18 talks about the one righteous act of Jesus Christ culminating in his obedience to the death of the cross resulted in life-giving justification for all the human race absolutely universally. And that his act of obedience caused all to be made righteous. And as many as he justifies, he also glorifies. That's in the nunc stans. It's already done, but it will be done also. As many as he justified, those he glorified. So the many sons and daughters that he brings to glory are the many whom he justifies and glorifies, which is everybody. 2.9 comes before 2.10 because 2.9 says we see Jesus who experienced death for everyone. And then it says, by the grace of God, but an alternate translation, which I adopted and believe is the one that was intended, was he, far from God, experienced death because he became sin, and sin is separation from God. It's not that sin separates from God. Sin is separation from God. Jesus was made separation from God so that you would never be separated from him. That's the suffering. So suffering was necessary. Look at Hebrews 2.10. For in bringing, in the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that the one because of whom and through whom all things exist should make the founder of their salvation perfect or complete, complete. Hebrews is regarding completion through suffering. So the one who brought everything into existence deemed it to be fitting that the founder of our salvation would be made complete through suffering. You say, well, that's kind of cruel. Why did God make that necessary? Because God is love, that's why. And it's necessary that every act and every passion of God, every action and every passion of God is rooted in his unstoppable, unrestricted, unconquerable, invincible, unimaginable love. Suffering was necessary on the part of the founder of universal salvation in order to make him complete. This is about the completion of him. You say, you mean Jesus is incomplete? Yes, he is, until all of us are in him completing him. For as the human body is one, but many has many parts, so also is Christ. The founder of salvation is made complete when all the objects of his saving act are in him. Suffering on his part was necessary because the cosmos was infected with sin because of the first inclusively representative man. Please notice that adverb, inclusively, because this world is, and this country is experiencing anything but inclusivity. The whole, the whole of certain media outlets is for the exclusion of some. 
while they talk about inclusivity. It's for the exclusion of some. Some are excluded. Some are different. Some are not included in the privilege of this or that. Well, the gospel is about the inclusion of all humanity in Christ, the whole Christ, the whole of humanity and the whole of Christ. And so suffering on his part was necessary because the cosmos was infected with sin because of the first inclusively representative man. That man was also a microcosm of the micro of the macrocosmos or the universe. And so the second representative man, inclusively representative man, as the Lamb of God, took away the sin of the cosmos that had entered the cosmos through the first inclusively representative man, causing death to come to all human beings. In fact, death to come to the whole universe. The tendency toward the death of the universe is just one definition of the word entropy. And so once again, I have to say this, the act of the lamb's slaughter, to arniu, to esphagmenu, the slaughtering of the lamb, the act of the lamb's slaughter, is associated in Revelation 13.8 with the act of the beginning of the cosmos. Katabole kosmu, the foundation of the world. The creation or the laying down of the foundation of the universe. The passion of the slaughtered lamb is the action of God creating the new universe, making the end the beginning. So Genesis 1-1 is the beginning, but it's speaking of the end. Genesis 1-1 is an eternal word about God creating in Christ, N-R-K, in Christ, the creation, the new creation. Genesis 1-1 is an eternal word about a new creation in the beginning, in Christ, in the crucified Christ, God made the heavens and the earth. So the passion of the slaughtered lamb is the action of God creating the new universe, making the end the beginning, making Genesis 1-1 to be rightly interpreted as not only the beginning but the ending act of God, resulting in an always new creation in Christ Jesus. In other words, the whole of the biblical revelation is found in the first phrase of Genesis. In the beginning, in Christ, God made the heavens and the earth. That's the whole Bible right there. It tells the whole story. God makes, redeems, and restores all of creation in a single act in which the end and the beginning are one in Jesus Christ. Now, I love teaching like this. You know why? Because it's not teaching and learning It's communicating and discovery. You learn by discovering something that only the Holy Spirit shows you. He turns on a light that doesn't have any language associated with it at all, and you go, "Ah, I see that. If he doesn't do it now, he'll do it later. The suffering of the Messiah was necessary because God is love. 
precisely because God is love. God acts only in love. The Messiah's suffering would result not only in his glory, but in the glory of all of humanity and all of creation. This suffering was the prime manifestation of divine love of God, who not only brought all things into existence, but of God who is as to his acts and actions and his essence, love, eternal, unrestricted, unstoppable, unconquerable, unimaginable love. And I could add Tony's favorite book, Inescapable Love. Inescapable. I run out of adjectives for this. 1 John 4, listen to this. The one who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. We would live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4, 16b, God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God. And God remains in him. And we could, of course, say, or her. In 1 John 3, 1, look at how great a love the Father has given us. That we should be called God's children. And we are. Now, speaking of the end, a beginning. I found some old notebooks. I've got like stacks and stacks. I've thrown away crates of notebooks and notes I've taken in the past. Crates. I mean crates of them in the past. And I found a whole bunch of old notebooks. And in one of them, I actually said, when did I do this? I took notes from Moltmann's book called In the End, The Beginning. Isn't that weird? In the End, The Beginning. Moltmann wrote, and I like Moltmann because he... He writes, use Moltmann in a, sentiment, in a sentence, someone will say, and I say, I like Moltmann. <laughs> in surrendering himself to a God-forsaken death, Christ brought God to the God-forsaken. Now you have to think about that one, because then you have to define terms and realize what he's saying here. But in the end, the beginning, Moltmann wrote, in surrendering himself to a God-forsaken death, Christ brought God to the God-forsaken. And then he wrote, ultimately, he helps them, that is us, not through supernatural miracles, but by virtue of his self-giving through his pain. Through his wounds we are healed. That's Isaiah 53, 5, Matthew 8, 17. A lot of phony healers go around and quote those verses as if you're supposed to be healed and if you're not, you don't have faith and a lot of other Bachelor of Science subjects. Through his wounds we are healed is a much more profound thing than that, 
It means healed from our sickness unto death, the God-forsakenness, which is also called sin, inasmuch as sin means separation. That's Moltmann. Sin means separation. So let me read what he said again in the end, the beginning, a book. He said, ultimately, he helps them not through supernatural miracles, but by virtue of his self-giving through his pain, through his wounds, we are healed healed from our sickness unto death, the God-forsakenness, which is also called sin, inasmuch as sin means separation. Now, to this, I would add, and in my older age, I'm beginning to have a dialectic or a dialogue with the people I read. Instead of just taking what they say, I answer back. I converse. So to this, I would add, if sin means separation, and I'll go with that, it is. Then the Messiah, the Lamb of God, took away the separation of people from God because the scripture says the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the cosmos, John 1.29. So when Christ was made to be sin for us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is part of the apocalypse of 2023 coming up, he was made to be separation from God for us so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him is that a shocking concept to you is it one that goes so far that it never ends that he became separation from God for us then this will shock you just as much so that you would be made the righteousness of God in him and never be separated from his love As Romans says in Romans 8, and I haven't published this yet, but I did a translation of Romans and our study of Romans, and this is what I came up with in a condensed form, Romans 8, 34 to 39, because Romans 8, 34 is where we went right to Hebrews. It's from that idea. Who is the one who will condemn? Christ, the one who died, even more was raised up, who is at the right hand of God advocating on our behalf. In the meantime, therefore, that's the time in between that we talk so much about, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Oppression, trouble, persecution, hunger, destitution, danger, violence. As it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. No! In all these things, we are super victors through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. For I've been persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things in the present, or things about to be, nor powers above, nor powers below, nor any other created thing will ever have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Moltmann calls Romans 8, 31 to 39, Paul's hymn of praise to the self-giving love in which Jesus and God are wholly and entirely one. That's a pretty good description. Thomas Aquinas, in my old notes, when Thomas Aquinas was good, he was very, very, very good. 
when he was submitted to the authority of the RCC, whatever that means, I can't remember, he wasn't that good. When he had to do, when he had to just bow to papal bulls and papal bull, bulls, papal bull, or whatever they call them, they called him bull for some reason. And I called them that too, but some of them, some of them were very good. But when he's good, he's very good. Same with Augustine. Augustine, when he was good, he was good. You could tell, well, God gave him that. Then when they decide to think on their own and think in their own rationale against the word of God, they get really, really lousy and sloppy. And that's why I always am intrigued. When Aquinas was 47 years old, he died. He went to live with his sister. He didn't write any longer. He spent the last months of his life praying only. And when he was asked about why he did that, he said when he was in a Catholic service, he had a revelation of such stunning magnitude that he felt that everything he ever did or wrote was hay and straw. And I think what he saw was U-S-S-J-C, U-I-C-C, the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. And I also would say, Thomas, Thomas, don't sweat it, man. You were good when you were good, and God, re- he's going to save all that stuff for you at the judgment seat. That's, that's silver, gold, and precious stones. Yeah, he'll burn the wood, hay, and stubble. I'm with you there. I got plenty of that. I've already had something huff and puff and blow my house down more than once. I've actually sat down at times, even recently, and said, I'm not looking forward to the judgment seat of Christ. I'm there right now. This is it. Because of the evaluation that he has of my inward being. And it always ends up with something like Psalm 51, where I say, renew a right spirit within me. Create a clean heart heart in me. And by doing that, what am I admitting? I didn't have a right spirit. If I'm angry, if I'm reactionary, if I'm filled with self-pity and want to quit, that's a wrong spirit. If I'm cowering instead of saddling up, John Wayne used to say, you, you can be scared to death, but still saddle up. What's courage? You're scared to death, but you still saddle up. That's pretty good. So my therapy is not watching the news, but watching Gunsmoke and John Wayne movies on INSP Network, Channel 295 on Comicast, I call it. Because <laughs> it, it showed heroes that were unashamed of actually being cisgender, or whatever it is. I was born this way, so I'm a man, I'm going to saddle up. I'm scared to death. Are you scared? Yeah, I'm scared to death. Why? You've got to go meet some killers. Well, what are you going to do? Saddle up anyway. Saddle up anyway. <laughs> and Matt Dillon, I forgot how good he was. That, that guy was awesome. Matt Dillon, he showed mercy, he showed grace, he showed kindness. He had to be a believer. But when I, whenever I see the, I get chock full of news stuff when I'm, taking a break, and I said, no, i got to go to INSP and watch Gunsmoke. I mean, even Festus. Festus is cooler than most people today. Doc, Kitty. 
Kitty was the longest running actress in a, in a movie part until some woman that deals with sex crimes took over. But anyways, I like Kitty. See, I'm, you say, what are you doing here? Are you getting old and demented? Yes, but I'm also doing this because it's a, it's a gimmick I use in teaching so that you can let what has already been said kind of settle in a little bit. Plus, I do recommend Gunsmoke. I mean, any show called Gunsmoke? <laughs> like there was a movie with Jimmy Stewart called Winchester 73, and I said to Pam, who names a movie after a gun? Those were the good old days. And there wasn't a lot of people going around shooting everybody up at, at that time either. Strange. It's only when there's such a horrible demonizing of those things that all this weird stuff happens. I wonder why that is. Huh. So let's get back to it. Paul's hymn of praise to the self-giving love in which Jesus and God are holy and entirely one. That means that God endured the cross also, the Father. There's something beautiful about youth and the youth of the Son. There's also something beautiful of old, ancient things like the Ancient of Days, the Father. In iconographic art, there is the beauty of the aged and the beauty of the ancient in the Father and the beauty of the youth of the Son, the eternal youth of the Son. And our culture has forgotten the beauty of the aged and the beauty of the ancient and the beauty of the ancient of the days. And therefore, it has striven with arrogance to maintain the beauty of youthfulness without understanding the beauty of the ancient of days, the Father, and understanding the beauty of the triune God. Thomas Aquinas also makes an interesting comment on Christ's passion in Summa Theologica, part 3, question 44, article 4, reply to objection 3, and I thank the past me for doing this because I never would have found this in the Summa Theologica. He said, at the time of his passion, the veil was rent, meaning the veil in the tent in the stone temple, to signify the unfolding of the mysteries of the law. The graves were opened to signify that his death gave life to the dead. The earth quaked and the rocks were rent to signify that man's stony heart would be softened and the whole world changed for the better by the virtue of his passion. This had to be something that came into the forefront of Thomas's mind toward the end of his life. Let me read it again. The time of his passion, the veil was rent. That's in the Holy of Holies of the old temple, to signify the unfolding of the mysteries of the law. The graves were opened to signify that his death gave life to the dead. The earth quaked and the rocks were torn, broken apart, meaning to signify that man's stony heart would be softened and the whole world changed for the better by the virtue of his passion. Thomas was on to something there, that it was by the virtue of his passion that the world would be recreated and redeemed. We can never be separated from the love of God expressed eternally in and through time in Christ Jesus. It's not only the love of God expressed eternally, but in and through time in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus endured separation for us all. For this and other reasons, I choose the translation of Hebrews 2.9, which says, But we see Jesus who was made inferior to the angels for a little while, so that from God, so that far from God, rather, 
he would taste death for everyone. Crowned now with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. The glory that will be in the new creation will be because of the suffering of death. Because of the suffering of death. If I was born and glorified, it wouldn't be anywhere near as good as if I was born, suffered, died, and was raised and glorified. Same with creation. Creation didn't just come into being by God saying ex cathedra or ex nihilo, out of nothing, bang, there it is. No, creation came about by virtue of the passion of the Christ in the eternal now of the moment of the cross. And when it was finished, he said, finished. Tetelestai. So far from God can also be, your translation says, by the grace of God, no doubt. Far from God can also be by the grace of God, though, because it was God's grace that came to us, 1 Peter 1.11, all that God suffered to enter into his glory. That was God's grace that came to us, a glory into which we will all be led, though not without some suffering on our part. If we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. If we suffer with him isn't an if. We are suffering with him. Whether the suffering is deserved or undeserved, whether it's persecution or distress, whether it's illness, whether it's separation, whether it's divorce, whether it's addiction. And I remember attending one time an addiction meeting of and the best people I think I've ever met in life, generally speaking as a category, of those recovering addicts are the best because they've already faced the honesty of their living and they're in recovery and, they're, and many of them that are believers know that they're no longer that and they're their new creation, but they pass through this humiliation. And I remember going to this meeting and a lady stood up and opened it up and she was, she was a recovering addict or a former addict and she said, we're all here because we're not all there. <laughs> and I said, that's for all of us. That's not just for you guys or, you know, that you've gone through this or you're going through this. That's, I get that. I'm not all here. And I'm, we're all here because we're not all there. But I would amend that a little bit because of the last verse in the Hebrew text of Ezekiel 48, 35 the city to which we have come, called Jerusalem, is also called Yama, Yahweh Shama. The Lord is there. We're all here, but we're all there. For we have already come to the new and heavenly Jerusalem. We're not all there yet. And we're all here because we're not all there. If we were all there in full regalia, we wouldn't need the Bible. We wouldn't need to be taught. So we're all here because we're not all there. But we are all there because we've already come to that city, but we're not all, all there yet. So that's what I get out of a little sentence like that. I'm sorry. Now, 
I began today's message by noting that there's a great affinity between Luke and Hebrews inasmuch as both refer to the law and the prophets as a unified testimony of the suffering and glorious Christ. So I'm going to end by showing the entirety of Hebrews 8 is built around, first, a reference to Moses, or the law, that's in Hebrews 8, 5, and second, an extensive quotation of Jeremiah, who steps forward to represent all the prophets in his passage on the New Covenant in 8, 7 to 12. So Hebrews 8 is built around that same structure. Moses, Hebrews 8, 5, see to it that you make Moses, make the tent according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. That tent speaks of Christ, for he became flesh and tented among us. And that's the law, that's Moses. And then in the second half of Hebrews, we have Jeremiah who steps forward to represent all the prophets and the new covenant. So we began with the law and the prophets testifying of the suffering Messiah and the glory into which he enters. We will end with considering Hebrews 8, which is built around Moses in the first half and the prophets in the second half. So notice this, my translation, Hebrews 8. Now the summing up of what we're saying is this. We have an archpriest who is of such significance that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a temple servant in the holy places of the true tent, the one pitched by the Lord, not man. You see, every archpriest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this priest also have something to offer. In fact, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest Since earthly priests are those who offer gifts prescribed by the law, which gifts serve as a mere copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was instructed when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For God said, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. That's from Exodus, Moses, the law. The tent that speaks of the true tent, which speaks of Christ, the suffering Messiah, who entered into his glory by suffering. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a superior ministry, something of value to replace the ministry of the earthly priest of the Aaronic order, is my comment there. A better ministry than Aaron, a better mediatorship than Moses. And with that, He is the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on the basis of better promises. Better, better. For in second paragraph, for if indeed the first covenant had been without fault, then there would have been no room to seek for a second one. For finding fault with, now here's a question for future messages. Finding fault with who? With them? the ones who received the covenant, or finding fault with it, the covenant itself? What did God find fault with? Them or it? Does God find fault with the people who couldn't do that on their best day, or does he find fault with the covenant that even came through him, through mediator Moses, and given by angels on Mount Sinai? That's a question. It's a good one. For finding fault with, let's so so far say this, with it, the first covenant, God says to them, the old covenant community, look, the days are coming, says the Lord. And this, the rest of this from 8, 7, 
or 8-8 eight, eight, rather, 8-8 eight, eight through 12 is all a single quotation, almost verbatim of the Septuagint of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took hold of their hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not abide by my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will covenant with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and upon their hearts I will inscribe them. And I will be their God and they will be my people and none of them will teach his fellow citizen or his brother saying, No, the Lord, because all will know me. Sounds like Habakkuk 2.14. From the least to the greatest, because I will be merciful to their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. Law, first half of Hebrews 8. Prophets, second half of Hebrews 8. Both testify that Christ had to enter his glory through suffering, and the glory into which he entered is, part, in part at least, a new covenant community in whose minds the laws of God are written, meaning that our inclination called obediential potency, our inclination is to do what God inclines us to do. Philippians 2.13, God is in us both willing and doing according to his own good pleasure. That's a big difference between the new and the old covenant community. And then he says in verse 13, here's AD 70 for you. By saying new, he makes the first covenant absolute, obsolete. Now what is old and aging is close to vanishing altogether. The temple, the veil, the holy of holies, the stone temple, the old Jerusalem, vanishing altogether. So why are you guys, says the writer to his audience, still finding your hope and still finding your covenant loyalty there. We're in the city, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. Father, thank you for this opportunity once again to see these linked and unified concepts of a suffering Messiah and glory, that he suffered to enter his glory and that his glory is the glory of a new creation. Father, help us to make this link in our mind and in our heart and in our being that the new creation itself, the cosmogenetic act by which the creation comes into being is linked inextricably with the slaughter of the Lamb of God. Help us to understand this in a way that can only be brought about by a divine discovery and not by human teaching. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for your attentiveness.